You're listening to Alumni Allowed, a new podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career and the advice they would give current students. This series is sponsored by the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development at the Graduate Center. I'm Anders Wallace, a PhD candidate in the Anthropology program at the Graduate Center. In this episode, I sit down with Mike Pino, who's the global learning partner for Cognizant Digital Business, a Fortune 200 IT services and business process outsourcing company based in New Jersey. He's responsible for setting the learning curriculum for 40,000 employees who work in data analytics, artificial intelligence, programming, and digital engineering that keeps them up to date with today's digital trends. Mike earned his PhD in English from the Graduate Center in 2004. In this episode, Mike tells us about the importance of pursuing learning outside your PhD discipline, the breakthrough insights you can gain by applying your academic interests and training in business contexts, and the importance of conveying your value to companies in ways they can understand and appreciate. Mike lives in Florida, so we made this interview happen via video conference. So how are you? Doing okay. I'm glad to be back in uh, North American time zones. You were in India, is that right? India, Singapore... Uh, was supposed to be also in Europe and Australia, but thankfully the uh, trip was uh, shortened just a little bit. That would have been a proper world tour. Yeah, long tour. (laughs) But that's a regular part of your work, it sounds like. You know, a lot more than I expected. Uh, And, you know, it sounds glamorous, but, you know, after you do a bunch of time on on airplanes and and really flights have changed over the last 15 years, it's not really that much fun. Yeah, I can imagine. For the listeners who don't know you, can you say your name and what do you do for a living? Sure. My name's Mike Pino. Uh, What I do for a living is I am the global learning partner for Cognizant Digital Business. Cognizant's a Fortune 200 IT services and business process outsourcing company based in New Jersey. And my responsibility is sort of like would be in an academic sense, a dean of a university. And I'm responsible for setting the academic curriculum for a approximately 40,000 students, which we happen to call employees. And I'm responsible for making sure that folks that do data analytics, internet of things, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, programming, digital engineering, a lot of cutting edge kind of skills. I'm responsible for making sure that I keep them up to date and driving towards the next thing. So So that would be my responsibility is really to set that sort of curriculum and program to make sure that they continue to be at a state of readiness for the organization. So let me see if if I've got that right. And learning in the sense that you're helping to train these IT consultants and data analysts on the cutting edge of what they should know in the best practices of their field. That's exactly right. It seems like quite a leap from English. (laughs) You could say that. <laughs> probably a lot longer a story, and there's a probably a long detour that walks through a lot of my history, which got me from there to here. And uh, you know, I've I've got about 25 years of software programming under my belt, so that's also part of the reason why that's also happened. That's that's interesting. Could you give me an overview of that journey? Well, I'll start for under, undergraduate. I mean, 
although I, I ended up getting a PhD in English, my undergraduate was in science. I, I uh, was in chemistry. I had the choice between graduating early with an English undergraduate or graduating on time with a triple major in uh, Spanish literature, English literature, and chemistry. So I ended up with a, a major in English literature, graduating in three years, and then minor in Spanish and a minor in chemistry. But my real background was always in, in chemistry and science, and I always found literature fascinating and fun. So I guess that's sort of one of those kinds of unusual kinds of wrinkles or quirks. But, you know, that's how I ended up in with someone that was actually doing Unix programming, because I, I learned how to do Unix when I was at an undergraduate working in the lab, because that's how we would analyze our data at the time. And uh, so I, I was the guy in the lab that learned how to do that. And, you know, from there, I decided to pursue a degree in uh, literature. And I'm, I'm not, I'd never regret it, but it was not something that a lot of people made a lot of sense to a lot of people are like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, it was more of a passion, I guess you would say. It was something I've always found really kind of interesting. I, I think that there's something to be said about it. And, you know, now that I've reflected on it more and more, the thing that I've always been really fascinated with is I've always found mm -hmm. languages kind of interesting, uh, both human and machine languages. And I, uh, I program in more than about 25 languages, and wow. I've learned to speak more, more than nine, um, although I, I really am not comfortable anymore in, in anything more than two or three languages. But I've always okay. found that the thing between machine languages and human languages to be the, the interesting kind of place. And to me, I think that one of the, uh, the really interesting things that has opened up in my career as of late is I'm able to do some interesting programming work where connecting machines with, with human language, being able to actually start to predict and to understand both emotional state as well as likely predictable outcomes uh, based That's on incredible. how someone is putting language together, how someone's assembling things, how, you know, based on a lot of different data points. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but I, I wouldn't say that, you know, that English was something that I started off anything more than just being really always found it fascinating to read the great works and, and have conversations about them and, and uh, pursue really the larger kinds of threads of, um, of literature, but not necessarily, I never, I, I wasn't really sure that I would actually be a professor. I enjoyed it teaching in, in the university system. I was never sure that I'd be a professor. You know, I, I guess you probably have more and more of, of my kinds now, but I, I worked full time when I was at CUNY. I was the head of operations for a digital marketing company in, in Massachusetts while I was writing my dissertation at wow. night. So, so it was one of those things where I don't think that that's a typical academic life. In fact, actually, I was more in the non-academic world than the academic world toward the, uh, I mean, maybe at the beginning of my career, it was that way, you know, my, my, uh, my, my academic career was that way. But by the time I was already writing my dissertation, it was, I was full-time employed. In fact, wow. actually, one of the funny, one of the funniest things I actually had was that I did go to, uh, MLA, which for my discipline in English, uh, that's where you go for jobs and interviews oh. and such. And, uh, I got a, tenure track position. And um, I went to talk to my mentor at the time. And I said, would I be crazy to take a 160% pay cut in the assistant professor? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, 
Yeah, you probably would be. <laughs> so you had this underlying interest in languages and systems. That seems like a common thread between chemistry and programming and then, as you put it, English and literature. That's exactly the case. And, you know, when I was in the program, in the English literature program at CUNY, uh, I had the chance to, to work with a linguistics professor. And that really launched me into a, you know, a little bit more of computational linguistics. And some of my work in my dissertation actually leveraged that. So it was one of those kinds of moments that I really found that kind of intersection. And that's been something I've been doing on the, in the background. So can you tell me a bit more about the career trajectory you took? You were in head of marketing while finishing your PhD and, and what happened from there? So I was working for one of the first online marketing companies, a company called eDialogue, which doesn't exist anymore. eBay bought it. And I was, I think, employee number 20-something. I don't remember, 26, 27, somewhere in there. And uh, by the time I was writing my dissertation, I was the de facto head of technical operations and responsible for a lot of marketing-type work, which was kind of unusual. You know, at night, I'd be, you know, thinking about Carlisle. And (laughs) during the day, I'd be (laughs) trying to make sure that the copy that we were sending out would be uh, understood by uh, some of our clients for NFL and Staples. And so making Uh sure that it would actually lead to uh, the outcomes that we were trying to accomplish. So it was one of those kinds of moments. It was very unusual that way. And from there, you know, it was pretty easy skip into, uh, I got back into the university system, but they brought me in uh, at Brandeis University to really help change the way that they were using online learning systems. So I came there and I worked in instructional technology and Hmm basically graduated from there to a lot of the learning systems and web development. It was part of the team that helped launch the uh, distance education program with an online component, built a platform for doing that, and built a lot of kinds of technologies that linked things together. Now it sounds so pedestrian, but at the time in 2004, 2005, you know, one of the things I was uh, able to accomplish was we streamed the uh, graduation ceremony around the world which at the time was not easy to do. And from there, I, you know, I, I ended up at Harvard Business School Publishing. They were really interested to try to take some of their work that they were doing, which they were basically, they took a lot of the materials that were from Harvard Business Review and some of the books that were published and they were making derivative products on CD-ROMs and such like, it, like that in 2005, 2006. And they, they asked me to help them rethink the whole thing for an online experience. So I I did that and I ended up building another platform for them. I ended up building a platform that helped deliver executive education at a fraction of the cost. I've built a lot of those kinds of platforms over the years, but that's been how, you know, a lot of my career has kind of gone is, is really the intersection of learning and technology. Super interesting. What's a typical day in the office like for you, if there is such a thing? There isn't. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked in an office for 10 years. I've worked out of my house for 10 years now. I do have office space, hoteling space, wherever I want. But that's been one of the things that's been kind of nice about my career is that I've, I've been able to sort of carve out a little space for myself. And yeah. so although I, I work from home, uh, sometimes my days will start at, you know, three or four in the morning. And that's to get on the phone with sometimes Australia, sometimes Japan, sometimes India, and work through some challenges, some issues, make sure I understand what the business needs are, what our 
customers and clients are, are looking for and finding ways to develop learning so that we can deliver our employees uh, with the skills that, that are needed at that moment. My day will start sometimes that early. Um, Sometimes I won't have a lot of things going on in the middle of the day. Sometimes, uh, you know, I'll have a lot of things going on in Europe and North America. So it just depends on what's uh, what's happening, where we are in the calendar, because just as academic calendars have their cycles and the you know, semesters and times of the year when you have midterms and end of years and all of that such, same thing happens in a corporation. Mm-hmm. So you may have, you know, your promotion cycle would be something which is like a tenure review and you would sit on a committee and inside a university. Here you actually do sit on a committee and you're doing a similar kind of thing, except you don't call it tenure review. You call it, you know, a promotion cycle and you're reviewing people's uh, performance and their potential for advancement. Sounds as though there are a lot of parallels in that way with academic life. In many ways, there there are analogy, uh, analogies between the two experiences. I don't think that they're so remotely distant from each other. I think that the stakes are different. I think that the speed is sometimes different. I think that sometimes the autonomy and the ability to do things in the academic space that you might not have the access to do in a corporation may be one, one significant difference. But I think that there's a lot of analogies between the two experiences. So what do you enjoy the most about your work? You know, one of the things that I actually have really enjoyed is, is how quickly I'm able to help people to feel relevant in their role and to feel not only, you know, relevant to where they are where they are and how they're performing in their current role, mm-hmm. but seeing an opportunity for a career and, and development longer term. And I think that, that there's a satisfaction that comes with developing people. You know, if you've, if you've ever had the teaching bug, you never really lose that sort of fascination, that excitement of seeing someone get something for the first time and then seeing them apply it in different ways and learning to do something with it in new ways. And I think that, you know, you get the same kind of experience in uh, the corporation, except that what you're actually doing is you're helping people meaningfully contribute in an organization and feel as though they're building for a career, a future for their family and for their betterment. That's what I I would say is the most satisfying. That's really interesting, because on the one hand, you're working with these digital systems. On the other hand, you're really saying that it's a lot about mentorship and developing people in the context of learning. Yeah, you know, one of the things that a lot of people tend to misunderstand about digital is that digital is about being more human. And I think that this is something that a lot of people have kind of missed about it. I mean, when you really get down to it, a lot of what's been changing in the larger ecosystem, I mean, this stuff has been around for a while. I mean, for instance, five, six years ago, we used to talk about digital technology and means of distribution in terms like social, mobile, analytics, and cloud or smack. And really what digital is, is a radical reconfiguration of all forms of interactions or commerce between humans, businesses, and institutions. And I I think that in some ways, what we're watching here is that the technology is basically reducing the friction and then accelerating the exchange between the people that produce and the people that consume. So what you're doing is you're disintermediating all the people that goes in between. In a certain sort of way, you're actually helping humans be more human. At the same time, it's actually kind of surprisingly dehumanizing. And the really scary part of all of this is that we may have the, the expertise, the know-how, the knowledge to produce some of these technologies, to produce robots 
that can teach themselves what would take a hundred years if done serially, but they can actually do it in parallel, teach themselves how to rotate a cube. So you now have AI that has taught robots how to actually manipulate things as well as a human hand can do, not wow. taught by a human. You know, in other ways, we have AI that was programmed to try to track down the Zodiac killer. And now it writes creepy poetry. And so, I mean, there's a lot of really weird stuff that's happening that you start to look at this and you start to say, wow, a lot of our innovations are, are really questioning <laughs> wisdom or self-consistent ethics or morality. I mean, in many ways, a lot of the stuff that we are producing are far surpassing what we as humans have been able to do in terms of self-consistent ethics or morality and law, for instance. You mentioned things you enjoy about your work. What about some challenges or things that you find frustrating in your work? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I think any time that you work in a collective sort of sense, one of the challenges that always exists is you have to sometimes give up what your own sense of the right way forward is. And sometimes you actually have to step back and sort of check your own uh, intellectual uh, arrogance at the door, because uh, the best ways forward are often with intellectual humility. And and sometimes that's not so easy. Uh, and maybe that's just for me. I mean, I've I've been very fortunate in many ways that, you know, I've, I've been pretty ahead of a lot of my class in many things. But one of the things that you don't learn when you're ahead of your class is that you don't learn how to actually step back and really respect and understand what's happening around you. And so mm. I guess in some ways, what's been hard is actually learning how to develop that sort of emotional awareness, how to actually develop a stronger sense of intellectual humility. That may be just a personal thing, you know, a quirk for, for me or something of that nature, but that's that's been one of my challenges. What I've discovered is actually an awful lot of interesting things happen when you stop actually telling people what to do or how to do it, but you explain to people what you wish to accomplish and what the outcomes are and let them actually come up with answers. And sometimes you find better answers than you even anticipated. So in some wow. ways, it's a lot of that kind of stepping back and, and learning how to actually do things differently. So that's a benefit of losing some of that academic autonomy, gaining the intellectual humility. Exactly. And, and uh, I think in some ways, you know, that team context is where a lot of this is really moving toward a collectively human can produce innovation much faster than individual systems, no matter how fast the processing speed and, and such exists. Do you ever feel disappointed about not being in academia? That's a great question. You know, I, the things I miss about academia, a lot of the, the time to really sit back and think about what you really want to say and what you really mean. Oftentimes, when you're working, you really have only a small bit of time to produce and, and your timetable to produce is ridiculously short. And maybe I'm, I'm romanticizing it because my experience of the academic world is not necessarily what a lot of assistant professors actually experience. I've never actually lived as an assistant professor, so I can imagine carrying a 4-4 load and trying to you know, find time to publish and research and also try to raise a family and do all of those things might be just as hard as uh, navigating a full-time job. But I guess, you know, uh, you asked me what my, my regret would be. So I guess in that way, I'll, I'll just keep it in, in my own narrow context. And I, I, I will keep the romantic sense of, uh, of the academic life and being able to step back and really, really think about what you mean and taking a lot more time to think through it.
How has finishing your PhD benefited you in your career? You know, in, in a couple of ways, what a PhD has done for me is it immediately establishes that I have the capability of working through problems, of being able to think through things at a different level. Mm-hmm. It immediately establishes a certain sort of credibility. The last time I checked, I think nine people have actually looked at my dissertation. That's excluding my committee and excluding my family and friends uh, that I actually made them look at it. So it it really doesn't matter necessarily in the corporate world what you worked on, but rather that you actually have this kind of experience of being able to work through problems at that level and at, at that level of intensity. That's what finishing the PhD actually has opened up for me. I'm not sure that that would be the the same for everyone, but that's for me what it has done. That actually resonates a lot. It's a skill in analytic thinking you can apply in many ways and makes you better and faster at learning new things. Well, yeah. And one of the things that you actually learn very quickly is that, you know, there's never enough time to get all the information that you want to get. So you have to actually learn how to quickly understand what roughly is out there and which areas are are most ripe to pursue. And as a consequence, I I think that that's a directly analogous situation to the kind of uh, speed that you operate at in the corporate space. You mentioned you you had a multidisciplinary academic training. Was it a computational linguistics course? My question was to ask you if there's anything else that you wish you'd learned while you were taking your PhD. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Computational linguistics really didn't exist as a discipline uh, at, at the grad center when I went there. Um, when I was there, we were still at the Grace Building uh, on 42nd Street and 6th. Um, <laughs> when, I, I, when I defended my dissertation is when we moved to 34th Street um, at the old B. Altman Building. So, you know, in, in many ways, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old timer when it comes to CUNY. And and the professor I studied with in the English department actually encouraged me to to do some of the things I was doing. One of the things I started to do was uh, I started to take apart uh, search engines, and I, I built my own search engine. And what I was trying to do is really start to understand semantic drift in a more meaningful way, so to understand how words change over time. And in fact, actually, my dissertation in a certain sort of way, I was able to accelerate my dissertation by the work I did doing this, by taking apart a search engine. I had to rewrite some code and and do some stuff with OCR scanners because a lot of my texts that I was working on weren't digital when I was doing my dissertation. Everything was still in microfilm and and in hard form. So you, you literally had to figure out where you wanted to pursue and how you wanted to pursue, and then you would apply this. But, you know, I wish at the time some of the ways that computational linguistics and semantic technologies have advanced since then. I wish I had the opportunity to do some more of that work when I was in my graduate studies. I don't think it, it's, it would have changed anything. It would have just been something I would have appreciated more. And I probably would be a lot more hands-on in programming now. If I were yeah. doing that, I'd probably be doing a lot more programming in R and doing a lot more stuff with linguistics than I currently am. I don't think I'd, I'd change anything. You know, it was a great experience. I had a lot of great professors at CUNY. Um, You know, I had a lot of really encouraging professors. I had one in the English department. I think he's still there, David Greetham. Man, he was uh, was pretty impressive. And he was really one of those kinds of genuine type of people that really encouraged people to pursue their passions, whatever they were. And we had this course on medievalism. 
And uh, he really encouraged us to to try to do something uh, and make it digital, with it, which at the time in the late 90s was put it on a CD-ROM. You, you were writing in C++ and you're doing all kinds of goofy stuff. So that didn't stop Professor Griefen, though. I mean, he would basically say, figure out a way. If you need me to help you connect you with someone in the uh, computer science department, let me know. But he was one of those people that really just encouraged it. And some people did some really amazing things at the time. It's experiences like that that really were kind of unique, I think, at CUNY from what I've been able to gather from other people's experiences in, in higher education and in uh, graduate school. So let's imagine that, you know, a GC student who is listening, that they were interested in going into your field, consulting or technology development. What would you say to them if you could tell them maybe there are skills that they should focus on learning, looking back on your own experience? Well, you know, what's really kind of funny right now is that the next disintermediation that's happening right now is programming that's known as low code or no code, which as it sounds, it requires absolutely no programming capability. These are platforms that make it easy for humans and machines to actually build systems faster. So in a certain sort of way, a lot of my past is a path I wouldn't recommend to other people because it's not going to be there much longer. But I would encourage people to really, you know, if they're listening, um, one of the things I would encourage people to do is to really spend a lot more time understanding people and contexts because the huge change that's happening, I, I think, is that a lot of the stuff that's happening right now in digital that people are calling hype has been around forever. So for instance, blockchain, Everyone talks about it and very few people actually know about it, what it, what it really is. But what it really was is a, a, a professor in accounting called uh, Yuji Ujiri in 1989 came up with a practice known as triple entry bookkeeping. And, you know, it took 30 years for the technology to catch up to, to where he was, and what he could conceive. And I, I think the thing that you actually have as a graduate student, you have access to think about things on a highly theoretical construct. And if you think about what people are going to need, where things are moving and where things are, are heading, you have the opportunity to set yourself up for a new path, whether that's mm -hmm. triple entry accounting to create blockchain some three decades later uh, when the technology finally gets there, or whether it's actually in, you know, if you're an anthropologist, we, we uh, employ a lot of anthropologists in the research that we do in uh, digital marketing to help understand the way to get the most out of the interaction design, the experience mm. design. And, you know, a lot of the tools and techniques that are taught in sociology and anthropology actually have correspondence in the corporate world. It's just the challenge that you have as a graduate student is you can't assume that the corporation understands what value you bring to them. I think the most important thing that you could actually do is try to imagine what they need and translate your skills into something that you could do for them that's unique to them. And I, I think that that's probably the most important thing you can do. I think, you know, it's it's a matter of branding yourself in a way that's that's unique and positioning yourself and your experience not only in you know, going through the higher education experience and finishing a PhD, but also translating that experience to immediate application. And it's a little bit tricky because it's not something that they teach you in, in any of the classes, I would imagine, in mm -hmm. CUNY. But I think that if you were to spend the time thinking about, you know, what's analogous and what you've learned and how it could be applied in, in a corporation, you can find some really interesting opportunities and 
there are a lot of corporations that are actually going down that path. I mean, Microsoft, for instance, has been experimenting in the last two years. They don't ask for a, a resume and they oh, don't yeah. ask for a CV. Absolutely not. What they're actually more interested in is how you learn to learn, how quickly you learn, uh, what mm. things you're capable of doing, and, and what kind of background and experience you have. And so, for instance, maybe you're a, you know, an educational psychologist, let's say. Well, there's a huge gap and a huge opportunity in understanding you know, psychometrics and being able to help a corporation take advantage of that should be a, a huge game changer for the corporation. And it may be something that seems so pedestrian and mundane to you with your background and training in psychometrics. That's such a fascinating synopsis you just gave and a really broad one too in the ways that students could think about how their skills apply in contexts they, they haven't even thought of. So I think that's a wonderful insight. The real challenge is that, you know, digital has changed everything. It's it's here. It has been here for some time. It's not a question of whether to do digital, but how to produce, you know, consistent and desirable human results through digital intervention, how to make things better for individuals through the collective efforts of machines and humans. But I think the thing that's going to be the huge game changer maybe uh, 10 years from now are, are really understanding ethics of wisdom and being able to be ahead of some of these things. I, I think our brethren in philosophy, people that have what seems to be the least applicable training on any job, actually may be the people who have answers for some of the things that are going to start coming up very soon. There is a place for people that come through with PhDs, but it's not for the corporation to help you understand what you bring to the table. You have to take that amazing experience and that degree and apply it to, to think about how to position it, how to brand it as something that's directly applicable to something that the corporation needs. Don't be afraid of actually, you know, branding yourself differently. And the other thing that you should also do as soon as possible is start writing and sharing. So, you know, start looking at things and what you're discovering brand yourself and market it by publishing it. It's, it's not going to be about what you learned. It's going to be how you apply that learning. So it's about what you distill or how you distill it and how you apply it. And the more that you are seen as someone that can help people understand that context, the faster you're going to start having job offers that you didn't even know would happen. I mean, in all honesty, the last few jobs I've had, people have come to me. I haven't actually been seeking them. And that happens by actually making a little time and getting out there, speaking a lot more, offering things, mentoring people. You'd be surprised how these things actually play out in the corporate world. But doing that, actually, your next job is, is usually one or two connections away. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Allowed. A big thank you to Mike for coming on the show to share his experiences as an English PhD in the world of digital strategy and consulting with our listeners. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Aloud, published every two weeks during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes, and you'll automatically be notified of new episodes. Also check out our Facebook, Twitter, and career planning website at cuny.is careerplan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.